Welcome, Legionaries, to episode 37, The Primarchs. This is another anthology book. I am your host, Warwick, and joining me is my brother, Maniple. Greetings, Longbeards. Remember, it's a new year and plenty of new grudges to lay down, so don't forget to take notes. And our co-host, Paul. Back for uh, another book and another year. Let's see how this one goes. Yeah, this will be our first episode of the new year. Do you guys have any frosty beverages tonight? Uh, I just have water. I, I cannot drink on this podcast. I always start slurring and getting <laughs> stuff just terribly wrong. Well, I may need a little bit of bubbly to get through this book. So the gas station down the street had half off all their holiday themed booze. So I have a bottle of peppermint twist vodka here. We'll see how far I get by the end of the fourth story. That, uh, you know, that's a solid strategy. This book is quite the stinker, but before we get into that, let's talk a little bit of hobby news, see what we have for a hobby update. I have been running my 3D printer like a mad lad, just turning out bits and pieces for my Night Lords, and I've got uh, 40 Night Lords Tactical Marines here, as well as my Derradeo Dreadnought that I've assembled for them. I still need one more Derradeo. And I'm thinking I'm going to end up picking up another Mark III box just because I need the bodies, another Derradeo, and I want another Proteus for my Ultramarines. So uh, that's probably in my future. It's kind of what I've been doing. What have you guys been working on? Yeah, I've uh, finally started to make some progress on the Sons of Horus. Uh, I've been house-sitting for Brandon, and uh, since he's got a house, I don't have to worry about making too much noise at night, so the airbrush has been running at all hours, just trying to get everything done. Um, hopefully within the next day or two, I should have all the infantry up to their base coats and varnishes done. And then it'll just be detail work after that. Well, I haven't done any hobbying since our Christmas gift exchange, but I think my goal for the first part of this year will be to work on some more terrain. I've got quite a few terrain kits I've collected over the years from Necromunda and different things. Maybe I could set us up a nice boarding action table and get enough uh, pieces together for that to have an inter interesting battle when we get together in February. I'm definitely looking forward to that fe uh, February trip down to Dallas. That's always a good time. In hobby announcements, GW has announced the new Apothecary kit. So there are two new Apothecary models, one in Mark VI and one in Mark V, which I thought was pretty interesting. They haven't put out a character or any kind of Mark V model in a long time, so... I'm excited for that. I think it looks pretty cool. The uh, the yellow uh, Imperial Fist paint job is kind of lame, but, you know, put him in some different colors. He might look pretty cool. Uh, Brandon's not here. We can we don't have to pretend to hate Imperial Fists anymore. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. And so it does look like we're going to get some plastic solar auxilia. Is that correct? That's what the preview looked like to me in that little, they put out a little video a few days ago. And it looked like some like a, a chicken walker kind of thing for Solar Auxilia or Mechanicum, that kind of thing, as well as some infantry and a plastic, maybe Mark III Herald model for, well, not plastic, but uh, a Herald model anyway. So I'm guessing that'll be resin they've been doing. I think these Apothecary models are going to be resin as well. Uh, then that Herald will probably be resin just like the last couple of characters they put out. Well, they do tend to favor putting out a lot of tanks. I wonder if we'll get some kind of a, a Baneblade kit that has some of the same guts we're familiar with, but a Horus Heresy conversion sprue with, with, with some better armor and different 
different lines on it. Same could go for a basilisk. You know, you could get the armored basilisk uh, style uh, with that. I, I would assume not too much work, but I'm guessing a lot of those tanks for the auxiliary is still going to be coming from Forge World or the Forge World side. I'm interested if they're going to do that uh, Imperialis sort of dreadnought looking thing in full scale or if I'm assuming we'll get it eventually. I'm wondering if it's going to come at the start just to kind of tie them together. Yeah, that seemed to be, when we had Lockie from Zorpa Zorp on, that seemed to be kind of what he thought, is that they already had the models kind of fleshed out for these, for the um, uh, Imper- uh, Imperialist side, and they would just blow them up for heresy. And so that's why we kind of lean towards Solar Auxilia being the plastic kit. Uh, pl- plastic army announcement, I mean. Would any of you get into that army, or do you think it's too many little guys to paint? I mean, I'm definitely in- interested. I know when you and I were hanging out over Christmas break, I got the Armies of the Imperium uh, lever, and you and I were kind of reviewing that as we were driving across Iowa, and, and we were learning all sorts of interesting, cool things about how their list building works and their detachments, stuff like that. So it's definitely interesting to me, but it's a long ways out if I make that investment. So if any like big army boxes get announced, I'm probably going to pass on those for now, just because I'm full tilt on night Lords right now. That's my new year's resolution. If I reach a stable place with them, maybe in another year and a half, I'll be able to jump into something else. Yeah. I've always been interested in guard. It's just never been something that I could allocate any funds or time to, um, you know, I'm still trying to get the Sons of Horus on the table, fully painted. If I start guard, that's never going to happen. So I just got to say would be cool in theory craft, but probably never play him. Yeah. So let's see. I'm trying to think if there's anything, any other hobby news we want to talk about. They did. I think today they announced their store anniversary models for 2024. I think that goes along with Warhammer Plus maybe. And it is a, for 40K, it's a Tau element guy. And for Age of Sigmar, it's a Fire Slayer's dwarf holding a key, which they've done like four models very similar to that already. But other than that, as far as heresy news, the, the Apothecaries and the Herald are like the big ones for me. Solar Exilia, like we said, they've always been interesting to us, but I don't think, you know, I, I don't think Brandon's going to be interested. I can't speak for him. He's he's away on a family trip right now, so he can't be joining us. So we're going to have to bemoan this these couple of stories in his Legion's honors. So well, I think for for the Longbeards out there to remember that they are they also coming out with the new box sets for the old world. And this kind of actually is a little bit of an ancillary topic to Horus Heresy because this is a time frame that precedes the main line. And likewise with the old world, this precedes Age of Sigmar. And so they're kind of going back into the well and digging out some of these older properties. And some of the models look really good and they're probably going to bring back a lot of the old stuff as far as I know. And I've got some local players who'd be pretty happy about that. So I'm definitely interested in Old World. I, I don't think I'm going to take the leap on it right away. I, and I, I don't know if I'll ever have time to play it. I know, Maniple, you've still got a ton of your Old World stuff, so we could probably play a game already. 
Uh, don't you still have your beastmen? Yeah, I still got my beastmen. Now, now that you, you bring that up, I was I was gonna guys. yeah I was gonna rebase them for uh, Age of Sigmar, but I'm definitely not doing that now. Now, if you if you ask Brandon about this, he'll just say, "Well, Warhammer Fantasy failed," um, and I'm not sure what his reasoning is for saying that. But Games Workshop, to me, basically killed it so that they could rebrand their Age of Sigmar IP and. Uh, copyright more stuff because with all the kind of generic language and names and stuff used in Warhammer Fantasy, they couldn't trademark as many things. So with them kind of restarting or, you know, moving the time or moving that whole universe forward and saying the old world ended, the new world is Age of Sigmar. uh, They're able to do their whole copyright thing that way, which it, it kind of bummed me out because I think Warhammer Fantasy is way cooler than any of the Age of Sigmar stuff they put out. That's just me. I've tried playing Age of Sigmar a bunch. Like even when Brandon was playing it a ton, he ran me through a couple of games with I've got a bunch of Stormcast stuff. I could just never get into it the way I got into like 40K or even uh, the couple of games I played of Old World Fantasy with the Beastmen that I had. I thought Fantasy was a great game. And I I don't know. Well, other than I guess it being a, a big hill to climb with models required, basically, because you needed a ton of stuff for it. I'm not sure why Brandon would say, you know, it's dead or it died. I think their foray into Age of Sigmar revealed how difficult it is to create a fantasy IP that people find interesting. So besides Lord of the Rings, can you name another fantasy IP that really captures people's imaginations? Like maybe Wheel of Time, maybe? I'm not familiar with Wheel of Time. And, you know, I guess the go-to would be Maybe Harry Potter, but that's not, it's not the same thing. It's not a vast fantasy that, that Lord of the Rings is. Game of Thrones, but there's so much ill will towards the author on that. I don't know if he would ever gain the same love that Lord of the Rings did. So I think when they moved into AOS, they were really trying to build a new, uh, a new fantasy world that people could really sink their teeth into. But it was so far from what we understand to be, and we talk about in this podcast a lot of, myth and legend and the human story and that sort of thing where the story of the old world really fits. You've got these disparate human civilizations fighting against all these horrible evils out there in the woods and in the desert. And that makes perfect, perfect sense to somebody. You can imagine yourself getting on a horse and going out and fighting that fight. If you told me to tell you the story of age of Sigmar, and I've read a bunch of the stuff. I don't think I could do it. I don't know the motivations. I don't know why they're doing the things they do. And it's a talk that Brennan and I have had quite a bit. Uh, I, I'm with you, Manipal. I've read a bunch of, I've read a couple of the stories. I've read a bunch of the, the current lore. And it's just boring to me. I, I cannot get into it the way I got into like uh, the Eisenhorn books. All, you know, most of 90% of the heresy books so far have been enjoyable to a point. I mean, not the one we're going to be talking about soon, but a lot of the other ones. And a lot of the old world fantasy books, there are at least six Gotrick and Felix books that you could read in a row and you could be plugged in the entire time. Just, it, they really grip your attention. William King, King did a phenomenal job. The The Genevieve books by, uh, was it Kim Newman that wrote those? Were, were really good. Um, Fell Cargo by Dan Abnett was a really cool fantasy book. All the Malice Darkblade books. Yes. And so I think we should probably start to move into our our topic of the day because I think this is a perfect uh, corollary to what we're going to talk about in the books of the Primarchs is that 
when the Primarchs are heroes and they're telling the hero, going on the hero's journey and, and going on adventures, it's great. I love that stuff. When they're just sitting around moping and talking about how miserable everything is, I just check out. It's just not fun. So these authors have got to stick to having stuff that is fun and adventuresome to keep my interest. I have enough misery in my real life. I, I'm really I'm excited to tear into this book because I think that all of them do a horrible job of characterizing the Primarchs considering what we know about them so far. So I'm, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to cut to a break on this one. Let's just do it all in one go. We've only been going for 50, less than 15 minutes. So. so so let me offer a little preface here, if that's okay. The Primarchs book is edited by Christian Dunn, and it is four stories. We have authors, a lot of authors that we like, uh, Graham McNeil, Nick Keim, Gav Thorpe, and Rob Sanders. And each of the stories is about 100 pages long. And I speculate that the, the brief when the authors got this was that, hey, we need kind of a mini novel about a Primarch. It's got to be grimdark, so don't make them too heroic. And try to set up some of the other stories that are coming down the line to sell more books and more models. What do you guys think the authors were told when they got this order to write these stories? Yeah, it does seem like a lot of it is just, hey, can we... We got this a little bit in Age of Darkness, too, where it was... These short stories are here to preface books that are to come. So give us a little action, you know, get all the characters in place and then end with, and then check out the next book where the story is going to turn into something. I also think it feels like, at least with the Emperor's Children one, which we'll get into, it feels almost like uh, they finished Fulgrim and said, oh, we need to cover this you know, and address some issues that came up in Fulgrim so that they'll be ready for the next story that we're really going to put them in. So we better do this now. Here's a hundred pages go kind of thing. What did you think work as, as a whole? I, I don't think that any of these stories are a good transition for any of the characters to another story, because I think that the dark angels and night Lords get, two or three short stories between this one going into when they eventually wind up in Imperium Secundus with Gilliman. So this doesn't even set the Lion, the Night Haunter, either of their legions up for another full novel. In like the Thramas Crusade is, is only covered in maybe a couple of throwaway lines and a handful of pages in these upcoming short stories. Um, Feet of Iron doesn't set Ferris Manus up for anything. It, it really shits on his character, in my opinion. Uh, the reflection cracked is Graham McDeal stroking himself the entire time and completely pissing on Fulgrim because it's not the same Fulgrim we had at the end of the Fulgrim book. And the ser Serpent Beneath with the Alpha Legion doesn't put us anywhere. So I think... <sighs> I, I just don't think that any of these authors did a good job with any of this material. Yeah, I kind of went looking at uh, other reviews, just kind of seeing what other people were thinking. And there was one guy who said, I'll sum up this book one star. The Emperor's children are arrogant. The Iron Hands are prideful. The Dark Angels don't know whose side they're on. And the Alpha Legion have completely lost the plot. And that's it. That's all you need to know. But we'll get into more detail. <laughs> Well, let's get into that first book then. 
Yeah, who wants to tackle the reflection cracked? Uh, I'll take this one, since uh, Brandon's not here to talk about his new shiny purple boys. So, the reflection cracked. Uh, this is going to be taking place pretty soon after the drop site massacre at Isvan. After all of that went down in Fulgrim, uh, the War Master ordered the Emperor's children to go to Mars. Um, I think they were specifically going there to secure war engines and to help the Fabricator General fully side with the traitors. We get a little bit of an aside here. It's going to be told by the uh, from the perspective of Lucius, and he's been having these dreams where he's being like led into the opera house from the end of Fulgrim, where everyone had gone crazy during the concert and had been doing all the debauchery stuff and in the dream he finds a painting on the stage and this painting is a fulgrim and there's something about the painting that's just very unsettling to him he looks into the eyes and sees pain and torment and then he wakes up and he hasn't really been able to figure out what these dreams are about so help me to refresh everybody's memory here as i understood it at the end of fulgrim even horace understood that the demon had fully taken possession of his body and this is the man in the mirror, right? Correct. And yeah. Fulgrim, Fulgrim himself was trapped. Correct. And I was under the impression that that's how things would remain because Fulgrim was had become a, a victim to his own ego and his the pursuit of perfection. And now this is, this was going to be an everlasting punishment that he, he he would have to watch his beloved Imperium and the Emperor and all his friends being killed at his own hand, so to speak while the demon just ran rampant using his body and his legion. Yeah, that was the implication that was made with all that stuff. It also was used as an implication that Fulgrim could somehow be redeemed. If the demon could be expelled and he could be restored to control of his body, that might be a way for him to come back. And I liked that because that meant that there was some kind of a consequence to this whole journey that he was on, that it really turns it into a, a tragedy which is a lot more interesting to me than just flat out grimdark. A tragedy has this little glimmer of light to it that if only they could see the error of their ways, there might be a way through. And I think this story cheats that. Yeah. So some things that are nice about the short story before we really get into the, the meat and potatoes of the reveal. Uh, I think this is one of the first times we really see the Emperor's children post-chaosification. Uh, Lucius has a lot of uh, observations about how Legion Command has kind of dissolved into this anarchic party of excess, and that the only real like command structure left is just the people that are the most powerful are able to control those that are weaker, and people follow orders almost out of like conditioning, uh, you know, rather than a choice. We get a war council with Fulgrim where he's showing a very manic personality now. He flies into rages, to melancholy, happiness to sorrow. He's just all over the place on the spectrum. An interesting part of that is Eidolon questions one of his orders to, to take a detour on the route to Mars to stop at this planet. And Fulgrim actually just straight up kills him after screaming at him and, you know, making this big scene, which I was, I had forgotten about that in this story that Eidolon just straight up dies and everyone's just like, Oh, 
oh, dang, the first captain's dead. Anyway, moving on kind of thing. And they don't address it either. It's just he's dead now. Lord Commander, not first captain. Um, oh, yeah. Marius Ferozian, I think, is first captain, and Eidolon is Lord Commander. Yeah. But you know, anyway, high-ranking officer gets killed in front of everybody else, and nobody really bats an eye towards it. Yeah. Which, um, yeah. And they did go into a little bit of the body horror uh, where they've got all these modifications and things that have been added to their bodies. And I thought that was kind of interesting, but it seems a little early for all that to have taken place. They're only a, maybe a month or so out of the drop site massacre and they've already begun to succumb to some kind of mutations and this body horror stuff that I thought would come a lot later, you know, not, not till after they've gone into the eye of terror or, you know, after the emperor is, is uh, nearly killed. So yeah. it just seems like the timeline is off. It, it really feels like the Emperor's children have taken the plunge into full chaos embrace a lot faster than any of the other legions, except for maybe the World Eaters, uh, which the World Eaters were already butchers nailed up from the beginning, so there wasn't much of a leap for them. Well, the Word Bearers have taken on some of this stuff, but it's explained that they went on this you know, spirit quest to encounter these demons that take them over. And then it describes the process of their bodies changing, but it's not all the Legion. It's just the guys who have accepted these demons, the, the chosen, the possessed that this happens to. And it kind of, it shows naturally how that progression happens with these guys. It's just, Oh, here we are. And of all the crazy stuff that's going on, Lucius is the one I'm rooting for. Yeah. He's the level headed guy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's like you, you wouldn't expect, and this is not a story from the perspective of Fulgrim. This is supposed to be about the, the Primarchs. This is a story more about Lucius uh, kind of rooting out what's going on here rather than what Fulgrim has dealt with or is you know trying to, to, to figure out on his own. So, it, so they take this detour. They go to this planet. It's a like Mechanicum harvesting world where they're harvesting these rare crystals that are being used for construction purposes. The Emperor's children land in force and take the planet after a pretty short battle. Uh, it was well written. Uh, not too much to say here. I think this is the first time we've seen Fulgrim use any sort of psychic or chaos abilities. He basically melts a warhound using some crazy psychic arcana power, which was pretty cool. Um, I think this is where we start to see Lucius question who's in charge of Fulgrim. Uh, he doesn't know about the demon himself, but he just knows that there's something off about his Primarch and not acting the way that, you know, he remembers and also having psychic powers is not something he was known for having before. Because of these doubts instilled in him, he starts to put feelers out to the other leaders of the Emperor's children to see if anyone else feels the same way. We also do get a, a brief aside with Fulgrim on his own, talking into the reflections of these crystal mirrors that he's found where he converses with the demon. And it's here that he's, it's revealed that Fulgrim is actually in charge and the demon's been trapped and the demon's begging to be released. Uh, But Fulgrim is, you know, denying him. I was really annoyed by the crystal forest because I've been to the natural history museum and seen a ton of different kinds of crystals. They don't reflect like that. Crystals are clear or they're colored. They're not mirrors. A mirror is something different. These are magic hand wavy space crystals. They man. are, yeah, they're psy- psychic space crystals, man. I'll leave it alone. <laughs> so Grand McNeil is a great author. Okay, <laughs> he always gets it right. 
<laughs> yeah. But, you know, it was an interesting scene. And that is, I think, where, at least as a reader, you get the big drop that, oh, Fulgrim's back in the driver's seat, um, which was interesting. And it also kind of shades in the rest that's going to happen in this story. Sorry, but see, there too, I was annoyed because I didn't think that as a Primarch, Fulgrim could access psychic powers on his own. So when he's doing this thing with the Titan crew, I thought, oh, okay, the demon's still there. But then you find out later that, no, by this time he's banished the demon. So how is he accessing all these psychic powers? And that part wasn't right. clear to me. Yeah, it, it never really explains how he is, it now has access to these warp powers or whatever. Yeah, it's yeah, really it's, annoying. It's never directly said, but during the next scene, there is some context given. It's just not very clearly written. Um, but to get to that, basically, Lucius finally gathers together uh, the Brotherhood of the Phoenix, which are all the high commanders. So you get like Julius Caesar on the first captain, and you get Fabius Bile, and a couple other characters pop up. And they're, he's basically like, look, guys, am I crazy in saying that Fulgrim is not Fulgrim, that there's something wrong with him? And everyone, you know, kind of goes back and forth on it. But eventually they all agree that, yeah, we need to get to the bottom of this and see what's going on with Fulgrim. And they decide that they're going to try to trap their Primarch. This was the part that I thought was a little weird, is they were like, yeah, we're going to trap a Primarch. You know, we're a bunch of Astartes. Let's take this guy out head on in combat you know, with only like 50 dudes and we're definitely going to be able to handle this. <laughs> um, so you get this uh, scene where Kaceron kind of lures Fulgrim down into the depths of the, of the ship on the way to see Fabius Bile. And then he gets jumped by everybody. And you find out pretty quickly that Fulgrim knew this was going to happen. Somehow he had it figured out or was told and he's kind of just playing with them a little bit. Uh, he ends up killing like a couple of the captains, but eventually a, a lucky shot to the back of the head knocks him out, which it's played as like this, oh, like we got very lucky that this happened, but also it feels kind of weird that a Primarch could just get hit in the back of the head and get knocked out. It's also like sort of implied that Fulgrim was playing along and so, like, took the hit and went down just to make them seem like they got him. But I don't know. It, it, it was it was written funny. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know, like, if you told me I had to take down a Primark, I don't know, like, how I would do it. You'd think maybe like a web gun or something to tie up his <laughs> limbs, you know, so, you know, and then wrap him with iron cables or steel cables and stuff. I mean, just, you know, knocking out a Primark, it, it just seems a little little difficult because sometimes they're they're just they're shown as like these you know gods that can do anything like for goodness sake he took down a warhound titan yeah you know, a minute ago well there's even one part of it where I, i'm blanking on the guy's name but one of the captains like gets in a really lucky strike and slits fulgrim's throat and like blood's shooting everywhere. And then all of a sudden the wound just immediately closes. And he's like, oh, that was pretty good. I'm going to remember that kind of thing. And then they get back to the fight. And it's like, all right, well, like this guy was a back, a shot to the back of the head and they didn't ask any questions. They're like, oh, we got him. <laughs> what I kept thinking about in that scene was there's this old SNL skit where Chris Farley 
is tricked into drinking real Colombian crystal coffee and he loses his mind. Oh, yeah, and yeah. starts assaulting everybody in the restaurant. They have to tie him down and finally they're smashing him on the head with a frying pan and he's screaming at them as he finally passes out. And that's what I was envisioning as this is happening. That they're just wailing on him with a thunder hammer on top of his head and finally he gives in. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> Uh, so they take Fulgrim unconscious and they strap him into this gurney in Fabius Pyle's workshop. And basically what follows is this long interrogation slash torture scene where they're like, hey, demon, get out of Fulgrim. And Fulgrim's laughing at him and they're trying to torture him, but he only likes it. Which, again, was another thing where it was like, they know Fulgrim post Isvan has been into all this torture stuff. Everyone else in the Legion is doing it. I don't know why they ended up settling on, oh, pain's going to be the thing that gets the demon out of this guy's body. You know, this dude who's like super into torture and being tortured is definitely not going to be okay with us torturing him. But Fulgrim is like sitting there like coaching them like, oh, actually you put that needle in the wrong spot. You need to move it a little lower. And he's like, oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> like stabbing him with it. And he's like, oh, hey, uh, nice job with the uh, the nail breakers there. You know, if you did it this way, it would hurt a lot more. And they're like, oh uh, yeah, I guess so. Kind of thing. This entire scene, I'm just thinking to myself, I would not call my plumber if I needed to perform an exorcism. <laughs> And that's what these idiots are doing. Yeah, so it's uh, it's a very weird scene. Uh, Fulgrim starts to like wax poetic and is like giving a lecture on the nature of the universe. This was kind of like, I think, the part where he starts to talk about where his powers are coming from. He basically hints that he's undergoing apotheosis to become a demon primarch. And everyone's like, well, what does that mean? And he's like, well, what it means is I am ascending to perfection and I am taking my gifts, you know, that I am getting from the chaos gods, basically, and just learning how to use them. And so that's kind of the implication is that's where he's getting the powers is he's he's begun the transformation. He just hasn't finished it yet. Um, and so he's like kind of coming into his own and soon we'll get snaky forearm boy. Uh, but that comes in a later story. Um, but yeah, it basically ends with uh, the captains realizing that they've been torturing their Primarch and it wasn't actually a demon and they all, you know, take a knee and bow and he breaks himself out of the restraints. And I had to go back and read it a couple times because I couldn't figure out what he said that convinced Lucius that he was really the Primarch. And I still, I don't know if I can find it again. I, I looked and looked and like, well, this sounds like it's just a bunch of demonic nonsense, gobbledygook, and then all of a sudden, Lucius says, "This is our Primarch. This is our Fulgrim." Like, okay, like how do you know? It's, it just sounds like lies to me. So they should have cut his head off. I don't know why they didn't. <laughs> yeah, I much rather would have had a story from Fulgrim's perspective of him overcoming the demon and like doing these. Uh, spiritual or mental battles with this demon that's conquered his body. And all the meanwhile, he's also subtly extracting information about the angel exterminatus from this demon. And that is our setup for the angel exterminatus book, which is what, when, like when Paul said, the, 
Fulgrim starts to wax poetic and talk about his apotheosis, that's what Angel Exterminatus is the setup. You know, it's the setup for Angel Exterminatus. I much rather would have had a book of Fulgrim overcoming his his personal torture of having betrayed his best friend, fallen to this demon, finding a way out of that. And then finally, when he's back in control of his own body, he now is dealing with this immense guilt and horror of what he's done. And so he turns to this, you know, you see it with, um, with alcoholics, drug addicts, you know, they're trying to run away from their problems. So they throw themselves into this horrible behavior and then eventually it leads him on this horrible road of debauchery to uh, to ascension, basically, where he's finally free of his torture. Yeah, and I think that is the biggest affront in this story, is the fact that the whole Fulgrim demon aspect of it is completely handled off screen. It's just, that was done, and that's the cool part of the story, but you don't get to see it, it's already over. Yeah, Andy says, "Oh, it was easy." Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Once, <laughs> once I decided to, I just I just locked him up. Oh, yeah, which is painting. such bullshit because it at the end of the at the end of Fulgrim, when the demon is swinging the sword to cut off Ferris Manus's head, Fulgrim is completely powerless to stop it. Mm-hmm. When he knows at this point how how bad he has screwed up. But well, yeah, and then they ask him about Ferris and he says, "Oh, oh no, I I'm over that. That was no big deal. It just, I've accepted it. I've moved on. Which, that is also BS because later on there's a short story of Fulgrim going absolutely insane with grief because he keeps having Fabius Bale, uh, Fabius Bale clone Ferris, try to clone Ferris Manus, but he keeps getting it wrong. And so Ferris Manus, or sorry, Fulgrim just has to keep killing these defective clones of Ferris Manus, and it's driving Fulgrim more and more insane and more manic the entire time. And it, it this this story here completely devalues all of that. I, I do almost wonder if a lot of this stuff is happening because the scope of the story. We talked a little bit about this, I think, with the Raven Guard stuff where it's just the scope of the story is so big and there's so many different actors and so many legions that at some point they're like, look, we need Fulgrim in the driver's seat and we're about to write Angel Exterminatus, so we need to have it done now. Like, okay, fine, 100 pages. Yeah, he already did that. The legion's on board. They're all 100% chaos now. Let's move on to the apotheosis book kind of thing. I've noticed they've done this a lot with the Demon Primarchs in particular, uh, like with Magnus, the, the whole meme of Magnus did nothing wrong comes from, you know, reading the early books and seeing like the road that took the thousand sons to side with the war master. And if you just read those, you're like, yeah, he's totally, totally been wronged. Why didn't the Imperium handle this better? There's no wonder he turns traitor. And then you get to the end of the sea, like the heresy books and into the siege of Terra and they just completely write it out and just be like, yeah, Magnus is totally on board with chaos now and he's just in it kind of thing, right? Which is just very weird. They do the same thing with Mortarian where he's very conflicted about chaos and then the whole Nurgle stuff is going to happen and then like two books later, he's just cool with it. So it just seems like they they really don't want to spend the time on the development because they just can't focus on it. There's too much else to to write. But yeah, that's the main gist. Um, I think uh, in, in terms of the audiobook, this was the longest one 
I think it was like six hours, even though it's roughly the same page count. I think they used multiple people to read for it, though. That could have been why. But the next ones were uh, a little quicker. Yeah, so that's the reflection cracked. Do we want to get into the next one? Now, I have a lot of problems with Feet of Iron. It's about the Iron Hands. And if you think about it, in a lot of the setup we've had for the Iron Hands so far, granted there hasn't been a whole lot, but it seems what we've gotten is that the Iron Hands are a very well-respected legion uh, by basically everybody. Everybody likes the Iron Hands for one reason or another. They're very well respected. And this story, and I am a, I'm not a fan of Nick Kime at all. I think he's a terrible author. He did the Salamander stuff, which is pretty awful. Uh, this story here is just straight up bad. And the, the reason that I want to say that is because he treats the Iron Hands like robots. And in the worst sort of way. And what I mean by that is that every action that the Iron Hands are thrown into, they trudge unceasingly forward into battle with all the tactical acumen of the Death Guard or the World Eaters. When I think of the Iron Hands, I don't think of this mindless attack force like either of those legions. I think of a fixed point that their allies can lead on wholeheartedly. And immediately in this book, they're trudging through this desert. And when they, when it comes, when they find out that the uh, Imperial army that's with them can't keep up, the iron hands just leave them behind just totally callously. And I'm not seeing, saying that they need to be buddy, buddy like the salamanders, but they, the Iron Hands are smart enough, they, they would find a better way. This actually goes against many different articles and books I've read that details the Iron Hands tactical doctrine, where they always work with those human counterparts to form a hammer and an anvil. And they draw the enemy in on one side and hit him with the other. They're always working together and smashing the enemy between two immovable forces. But here they're like, no, we're just going to keep trudging through the sand and hope for the best. That is the dumbest Iron Hands writing I've ever, I've ever had, ever read. It, it's funny because it does feel very much like how the Death Guard are written. Just unrelenting, sheer weight of numbers. Just throw yourself at the lines and eventually you'll break through. That, that's Death Guard to a T, not Iron Hands. Something that yeah. really stood out to me in the way especially the battle stuff and the way they talk about their augmentics is written, it feels much more 40K than 30K in uh, just the general vibe that they give out, especially with a lot of the augmentic stuff. Because I remember, at least in the past, in some of the older lore that was written, the augmentic things didn't really happen until post-Isvan. It was like a really big ramp up and mechanical, like the flesh is weak, our Primarch died. We need more robots. Kind it's of how thing. they it's how they sustain their numbers. Yeah, their fighting numbers. And now. so the fact that they're explaining this story that happens well before Istvan and they're already augmented up, you know, like tech priests is a little weird. Yeah, definitely. That that is a, a total misreading of the Iron Hands lore. They specifically took on those practices after their Primarch died because of their weakness. And they had to expunge all weakness possible. That meant getting rid of as much flesh as possible. 
But to have this already happening at this point where Manus is still with them made no sense. Now, big problem with Ferris Manus because every time he is faced with a challenge, he charges forward half-cocked like Angron. You know, he, he's always just running towards the enemy. When he should be cool-headed and calculating this entire time. In, I think it was No No Fear, when Gilliman is talking about the Dauntless Few, Ferris Manus is in the Dauntless Few in Gilliman's appraisal because he is completely reliable. And in this book, Ferris Manus is more than happy to just outpace everybody and leave him alone. Now, I understand some of you, some of the listeners might say, well, that's what he did on Istavan. What I'm saying is, is Istavan is the exception, not the rule. Ferris Manus died on Istavan because he was not acting like himself. Yeah, definitely. And that's why Istavan is supposed to be a tragedy, because the one time Ferris Manus let his emotions get the better of him, that's when he died. And it was all part of the trickery leading up to this betrayal that, that got him there. Whereas in everywhere else, he's always cold, calm, logical, and and a, a, a machine that, that just gets things done. Yeah, so for whatever reason, the Death Guard, the Iron Hands, and the Salamanders are on this desert planet fighting the frickin' Eldar. And they could be fighting anybody on this planet for all that it matters. The subplot, I, I don't even know if it's a subplot. I don't even know if this story has a plot. But... The point is, is that there's this Eldar Farseer that's trying to get an audience with Ferris Manus. And the way he does that is he separates Ferris Manus from the rest of his legion and leads him through this psychic maze of bullshit where in doing so, a demon gets in and it takes the form of the, the, the metal dragon back on Medusa that Ferris Manus killed and that gave him his... Iron Hands. Um, I can't remember what... Uh, Azanoth was the, the name of this creature. Which it's theorized that it was a part of the Catan Shard at one point, but we don't actually know. Anyway, Ferris Manus beats the shit out of this demon, eventually finds this um, Eldar Farseer, and the, the Farseer is trying to talk to him. And the, the only funny part about this, or good or funny part of this story, is when this Elder Farseer says, do not give in to Roth. And Ferris Manus just says, Roth is all I am, and beats the shit out of this Farseer. Which is really funny, but also out of character. Because, as we just stated, he should be a very calculating individual, not a psycho like the Night Haunter or uh, Angron or anybody you know, any of those very volatile legions. The, the Iron Hands are the exact opposite of that. They should be cold as ice. Anyway. Uh, yeah, I think where I got off on the, on the wrong foot with the story was at the very beginning where he's got this interior monologue and he's talking about how I'm just as good as everyone else. Why don't they appreciate me? I'm I'm as, as good as anyone else. I'm the equal of my brothers. That's a pro-Robothop. Yeah, and so... I have always kind of thought of him, his internal monologue would be more like Conan the Barbarian, where he's witnessed unimaginable horrors and he's been betrayed and he's been through just the worst of it. But no matter what, he's going to keep slogging through. He's going to get things done because he's the most reliable person there. He's the strongest. He's the best. 
but he just sounds like just whiny and uh, like an emo or something. And I just thought it was uh, really uncharacteristic of how I've ever always, always thought about this character. Yeah, uh, really. I think this, this entire story is a big mess with all the characters and there's uh, there are several parts where the, the Eldar are using some sort of psychic attack to make the iron hands augmentics target themselves. So they're like slitting their own throats with their augmentic hands to which I was like, wasn't one of the big advantages like in uh, the role playing and um, you know, some of the games is that bionics cannot be affected by psionics in the same way that like a flesh mind would, you can't, you can't communicate with the computer with your psychic powers the same way you can communicate with a human mind. Right. So when the Eldar are using this and they're targeting massive amounts of iron hands to, to do this. And again, the iron hands would have a solution for something like that. Like they would uh, step back, they would come up with, you know, some kind of blocker, or uh, an override for their augmentics. They don't even bother. Just uh, We're going to keep slogging towards these Eldar psychics, regardless of whether or not they can control us or not. And even like, say, work that your hand was being controlled by someone else. Okay, your hand can do a couple things, but it's attached to your wrist and your elbow and your shoulder. Just hold it over here. It, there was a scene in Garth Meringi's Dark Place where the um, the possessed woman is able to make objects come to life. And so they're all running away from staplers and spatulas and, um, and other, you know, other inanimate objects. And I'm like, okay, even if a, if this microphone here on my desk was able to become sentient and want to kill me, it doesn't have legs. So I just don't, I just don't get that they were completely, uh, these augmentics were out of control because they've also got their power armor on there too. So why don't they just turn their power armor off? And make them suffocate if they had that power. I mean, there's, right, there's ways yeah. they could have done it. There's a, th- a thousand better ways the Eldar, if they had this power, could have utilized it, and they, they don't even bother. And like one of the one of the characters, uh, like you said, you know, the, the hand is attached to your wrist, is attached to your elbow, is attached to your shoulder. One of these, uh, I think it was Byron Henricos, actually, we saw him in a previous story. Uh, the one about where little Horace gets his face chopped off. Byron Byron Henricos was the iron hand that was there. Anyway. He, the only automatic he had was a hand from the wrist, you know, from the wrist to, to the hand. He takes it off and now he's now totally immune. It's like, well, if that's your only augmentic, as Maniple said, why don't you just like over here? It, it's not a big deal, but it's just stupid stuff. And in all the, the rest of the Iron Hands command structure is just completely opposed to getting rid of their augmentics or anything like that when it's the biggest thing holding them back. Anyway, they're trying to figure out how to get through these Eldar Void Shields. They don't have a solution. I don't even know if any of the the other details of the story are worth talking about because basically this Eldar Farseer wants to tell Ferris Manus, don't go to Istvan with um, anybody else. Go with Gilliman because you notice that the vision Ferris Manus has is of this black planet, Istvan, being surrounded by a band of iron and a band of cobalt. And the the fore, foreseeing being that if he goes with Gilliman, the Iron Hands and the Ultramarines will defeat Horus there. Doesn't matter. Doesn't go down that way. Ferris Manus isn't putting up with any alien bullshit. He ignores the Eldar warning. He ignores the Eldar warning. Somehow 
just winds up in the middle of this force field with Byron Henricos and they beat the shit out of the Eldar and that's basically the end of the story. Big miss with this one. Totally, it's not an accurate representation of the Iron Hands at all. I know Brandon was texting me about this and, and I totally agree with him. The Iron Hands are, are written really stupid in this one. They're written like a totally different Legion. Absolute skip. This adds nothing to the universe. This adds nothing to the character. There are no heroes. There are no villains. Everything in the story is completely excusable. There's there's nothing worth hanging on to here. I guess the only part I liked is when Ferris Manus is going through the maze. He encounters the sculptures that represent the other Primarchs. That part was good, it, but it was only a couple lines. Yeah. Then, then at the very end, help, help us decipher this one. The two Farseers, are, the Diviner and the Farseer are talking to each other. And the one says, there is hope, he muttered. In the empire of the Battle King, he who would install an heir, even if the Gorgon falls and fails to heed our warning, there is another who will listen, one who was lost. So it's implying, so the uh, the Empire of the Battle King, I think, is Gilliman. And it's implying that the and the, the two Primarchs that we don't know about are referred to as the Lost and forgot, Forgotten. It's implying that one of the Lost Primarchs is in Ultramar, which I don't believe. Um, I don't like any references to the Lost, well, I, I like very few references to the Lost or Forgotten, implying that they, they are still alive or still exist or are in some way could be found. I don't really care for that at all. Could it, are they, could, could it be that they're referring to Dorn? Because wasn't his big fortress lost in the warp for a while? And then it was found by the Eisenstein. No, um, the Eisenstein detonated their warp core and it right. cleared out a space for the phalanx to find them. Right, I, I don't, I thought Dorn was like, adrift in the warp at that time and they I'm not really sure I don't think it refers to Dorn because okay. he's he's basically accounted for for all of history until post heresy basically so we don't really know who the elder are talking about here then I think it's a reference to one of the lost Primarchs but uh, I don't think that he's an Ultramar if Gilliman knew about him I think we'd have more information so I think the question is then kind of like with the reflection cracked where the story of Fulgrim versus demon would have been a better story. What do you think would have been better here? I do like the idea of Ferris Manus being approached by the Eldar to give a warning to kind of parallel what happened to Fulgrim in Fulgrim, um, where he gets the lair blade and the Eldar show up to be like, Hey, you got to be careful about this heresy thing. And then they see the blade and they realize it's already too late. I think it would have been cool to see in parallel a separate group of Eldar going to Ferris Manus and being like, hey, Isvan's about to go down. You should be careful because death flags. I just think it wasn't well written. And I think that they were not characterized very well. Maybe if it was one of those things we see in science fiction where you're given a warning and because of the warning, you do the thing that you're not supposed to do to make it more tragic that way would have been more interesting. It just wasn't very clever. Yeah. It's just, here's the warning. Ferris Manus says, screw you. And then that's it. There's nothing well, that changes here. I think that 
Ferris Manus would have a much better character if A, he wasn't a whiny bitch, B, if he was a reliable figure in the eyes of his brothers. So this story is set up that the Iron Hands are the only ones struggling against the Eldar. The Salamanders and the Death Guard are doing just fine. They don't need their help. If it's set the other way where the Salamanders and the Death Guard are on the back foot and it turns out that Ferris Manus and the Iron Hands are able to put together some kind of you know game-winning strategy and come through, it, it would make Ferris a lot more endearing. It would set him up to be a hero, which in this story he's just not. It would set up some kind of villain, maybe being the Eldar. Like um, Instead of being an Eldar Farseer, make it a Dark Eldar Archon. And like you would have a lot more psychological distrust to this character already. Yeah, make it the, uh, like um, Fulgrim is uh, Fulgrim is approached by the the regular Eldar, and they're too late. The Dark Eldar approach Ferris Manus with a warning, but Ferris Manus sees how depraved and awful the Dark Eldar are. He's just never going to believe them, and that's when it all falls apart. And, you know, he just goes ham purging them from this planet. Or even something like he's got the, the solution to the Istvan problem, whatever it's going to be. But he forgoes that in order to save his brothers. He's got to go save the Death Guard and the Salamanders. That sets up him trusting both of these forces so that when he goes to Istvan, he believes that they're backing him up and they're going to be, you know, solid defenders of this cause on Istvan, but finds out that the Salamanders pull back, the Death Guard betray. It was all because he tried to save them, but and ignored the warning of the Eldars over here because he was so busy being a good guy. I would yeah. love that story. Yeah, I think that would have worked a lot better. Let's rewrite all these. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think <laughs> a lot of these are an easy fix. And I think, like I said, I think Nick Kimes is a terrible author. I'm trying to remember what else he written. He's written... Um... He wrote all the Salamanders books, uh, like the the 40K Salamanders books, I think he did. And then he did Deathfire and uh, some of the Salamanders short stories, but they're dog water. Yeah. They're almost unreadable. I was trying to think. I, I vaguely remember him writing good 40K books, but I also haven't read any of those in like a decade. So I don't even know what they would look like. Well, I remember Brandon telling me about the 40K salamanders books that he did and brandon said something about he makes the salamanders resentful of their reputation because they always have to go out of their way to protect humans and i was like that really pisses on the character of the salamanders they're like the ultimate good guys in 40k yeah well so, swing and a miss should we try the yeah. next book yeah we'll get in the next one maniple do you need a break Welcome back, everybody. I hope you enjoyed your break. We really needed it because this book is a slog. This next story is of the lion. And I my problem with I I think this book is or this story here is easily fixed by we have the lion's perspective, which we've never had before. So this story would have been better if it had been 
And, and I don't think we should ever be inside the lion's head. A lot of his story is people not knowing what he's thinking. So for us to have the lion's perspective in this one is very unusual, and I, I don't think it does him any favors. This story also throws away a developed character that we've seen in the in the two previous books, uh, Descent of Angels and Fallen Angels. And I'm talking about Brother Redemptor Nemiel, who is set up uh, to have this character chemistry with our other main character. Um, is it, uh, it's not is Raphael. Um, I always forget his name. Uh, anyway, he's set up to have chemistry, character building chemistry with his rival from Caliban. In the second book, he's set up to be like a, a, the ultimate battle buddy. That's why he was turned into a chaplain. In this story, he just gets pissed away in a very uncharacteristic fashion. What I mean by that is that the lion is not acting like himself. He acts like Angron or the Night Haunter or Pearl Rabo. He's got a very short temper, temper. That's not how the lion has ever been set up to act. And I think the lion should be dangerous, but not psychotic. Yeah, exactly. He's not Angron. He should never act like Angron. So the setup for the story is we're, we're back at the Thramas Crusade, which the... This story is not even about the Thramas Crusade, which we have next to no information or uh, any story on the Thramas Crusade. We've had one short story so far in Thramas. This story, they immediately abandon the campaign. Well, temporarily abandon the campaign. They do come back to it. But the lion goes on a side mission because he gets information that the Iron Hands and the Death Guard are contesting a world that the First Legion conquered in the Great Crusade. And it has a very unusual nature about it because there's a Mechanicum facility there researching or processing some kind of crazy secret, which I've kind of got mixed feelings about. It does give the line the advantage he needs to finalize the Thramas Crusade. And I think um, if you've seen the Astartes series... There's the big floating orb thing. One of my theories was is that this T'Challa or um, T'Chula engine that the lion recovers is similar to what we see in the Astartes series. Anyway, you know, the. Oh, it's just frustrating to even think about this story. Uh, the lion qu quits the Tham Thramas theater for a while and goes to this. Mechanicum facility on the well, way there. Yeah. Talk about what happens on the way there yeah. on the way there. Their navigator sees that they're probably being followed very accurately in the warp somehow, which is in this story said to be impossible. And to reference another bad story, we go back to battle for the abyss where not only are ships following each other through the warp, very accurately and with impunity, they're able to dock with one another in the warp. Okay, by this time, I wished I was back in Battle for the Abyss. That was such a better story than, than anything in this collection. Which is should be difficult to say because Battle for the Abyss is a bad story. But it's easy to say in regards to these stories here because they're all pretty bad. Well, anyway, the Lion devises some warp bullshit to trick the night lords it's a night it ends up being a night lord ship uh 
They trick the Night Lord ship into dropping out of the warp practically right on top of them. The Lion's ready to open fire. Uh, the, the Night Lords talk shit to the Lion a little bit before somehow overloading their warp engine and spawning a bunch of demons on board the Lion's flagship. And chief amongst the demon is none other than Karo's Fate Weaver, for whatever freaking reason. And, and it's not like it... Their Go ship ahead. is kind of caught midway between warp transition and out. So they can't get their Geller fields up. So they're being invaded by all these right. demonic entities. And so the kill teams are going trying to wipe them out, but they're having a rough time. Which should be interesting, but I just didn't care. I was just like, oh, whatever. The lion is just a total blender through the corridors of this ship, fighting off all the demons. And he has a one-on-one -on -one with Carol's fate weaver who he ends up just murking right away. It's not like it's an interesting battle. Um, the lion eventually gets the drop on him and just slots him right away. It's, it's not a, I don't think it's well-written. I don't think it's very interesting. The lion doesn't consider really any of the things he's told. He, he doesn't care basically, which I think is the, the proper attitude for the lion to have. Um, it's just, it's not necessary. It it would have been more interesting to throw the Night Lords, let the Night Lords get to where the First Legion is going, throw them into the mix at the end, and it becomes much more interesting and anarchic at that point. Just throwing them away in the beginning of the story for nothing to happen, for them there to be no lasting consequences of the... Is it the Invincible Reasons, the name of the lion ship? There are no lasting consequences to the ship being boarded. We don't lose anybody but Nemiel, and it's because the lion punches his head off because Nemiel wouldn't break the Edict of I Nikea, which is in his it's in his wheelhouse. It's why the chaplains were installed to, to uphold that. But for the lion to just immediately punch his head off, like... Two, there's like two lines of dialogue between them before the lion kills him immediately. My big biggest problem with that is not only because it's out of character for the lion, it destroys and completely deletes a developed character we've had on to this point, and that it, at least I liked, even though the last story he was in wasn't necessarily a good one, I thought he was well-written as a character because it made you want him to be around as your commanding officer. For him to show up in the story, say, I won't let you use psychers for this strategy, and the line to immediately kill him really pisses me off. Throw him in the brig, let him think about what he's done, maybe throw him into a fallen arc after that because he doesn't see the line as a worthy leader or whatever. Give give him some con conflicting emotions between emotions between him and the lion, and it's a much better story to just Delete him like this really pisses away a character that we've had around forever. And it's not even like he's killed by an enemy, like he does anything heroic. He's just deleted from the annals of history. So something that kind of picked out to me with this, I don't think it was very well written or handled, but the line that I saw through it was after the conflict with Kurz, uh, Kurz had kind of implicated that some of the Dark Angels were going to go traitor or had gone traitor. 
And there's an earlier scene where Corswain is observing the lion and kind of notices that he's been a little bit more paranoid about the people around him. And I think that's kind of where they're trying to put this Nemuel arc, which is Nemuel's talking back to him and the lion's like, he's a traitor, he has to die. But I just don't think it was written very well. The lion never implies for an instant he thought Nemuel might be a traitor. Yeah. Really lame. And it's it's not even implied the lion thinks there might be a fallen presence on board his ship. Yeah, I, I was expecting him to say something like, worthy chaplain, we're at an impasse here. I understand you're doing your duty, but I have to do what's best for this ship and turn in your crozius and your badge and we'll sort this out when it's all done. I, I, but I don't, the way that all the primarchs are written in these stories is that they are completely black and white. They don't have any ability for nuance or to negotiate or say this or that. And maybe that's how they want them to be portrayed going into the heresy era with this kind of, you know, black and white thinking where they make a decision and they're stuck with it forever. And sometimes they do it that way, but sometimes they do it the opposite way. And I don't know. I, I think the primarchs should be very interesting, nuanced, well-thought characters, but they just use them as these plot devices that just kill things. And that's just not as interesting uh, to me. Whereas in other places we've seen like, like Horace, Horace is very thoughtful. Fulgrim early on is very thoughtful and you could give many other examples uh, through that, particularly uh, who's the word bearers primark Erebus. No, not Erebus. No, um, Lorgar. Lorgar. Lorgar is very thoughtful and he's going back and forth with all these different scenarios that makes them much more interesting. Like there are these warrior poets and these philosophers and deep thinkers. But with these guys, like the angel or the, the, or the lion, you just don't get that. It was, it was annoying to me to see him, him handle that that quickly. Yeah. And like I said, he, he acts psychotic. He, it's something that Angron would do. It's something that Kurz would do. It's super out of character for any of for the lion himself and any of the dark angels at all. When dark angels kill one another, it should be dark angels killing or fighting the fallen or vice versa. You don't have loyalist dark angels killing loyalist dark angels unless there's some kind of setup that they do it unwittingly, basically. Like they've got the wrong lead, they kill the wrong person. And then it should be a tragedy from that point on where they become more introspective. The lion doesn't, bat an eye at this. He just says, we'll mourn him later. <laughs> like, you didn't set this character up to be mourned. We we don't... If you didn't read the, the previous two books with Nemuel in them, you wouldn't know who this character is. This could have been any character for all the weight that his death carries. This is a developed character. He's deleted, and there's nothing to be shown for it. There are no consequences um, he's not set up to be a villain. He's not set up to be any kind of antagonist. He's just gone. Now, the ship is eventually cleared. The The Battle Brothers that were once in the Librarius are restored to being librarians. The Lion has now abandoned the Edict of Nikea. The librarians in tandem with the shipboard navigators are able to find all the demons and they're able to push them off the ship. And there are no lasting consequences to the ship having been boarded. The dialogue with Karo's Fate Weaver is pretty forgettable. Karo's Fate Weaver does slip that the Emperor is probably still alive, and the Lion does pick up on that. 
And he also makes a crack about the lion not returning to Caliban ever, which we've kind of already had, like Kerr's already set him up for that. Carol's fate weaver saying the same thing doesn't add anything to the dialogue. The lion beats the heck out of him and the dark angels are back on the road to this Mechanicum facility. I think that the way when they get in system, they see that the iron hands and the death guard are just going at it over this planet. They both want whatever is being held here. And the lion's very skeptical. I, I did a little agree with the lion's handling of this. Lion says, we can't trust anybody, so we're not going to side with the Iron Hands, and we're not going to attack the Death Guard right away. He interposes his fleet between the Iron Hands and the Death Guard, and basically calls a, um, a meeting between these two opposing sides. The reason the Death Guard know about this location is because Mortarian and the Lion... This was like one of their first engagements after being uh, meeting one another. Conquered this system and they found this device that is the kind of the crux of this story. However, he's very skeptical of the Iron Hands. The Iron Hands shouldn't know about this. And when questioned about it, the Iron Hands let slip that, well, we've taken up with the garrison at Imperium's... Uh, well, he doesn't call it Imperium's guns. The garrison in Ultramar... And Gilnan has ordered us to retrieve this, uh, what's it called, the Tachula device or whatever. And the lion says, I think Gilliman is making a huge mistake and I don't agree with it. That's why I'm not going to Ultramar. And we haven't heard uh, in any of the short stories so far, and I know it's not been very long since um, uh, No No Fear, but Gilman hasn't, we don't have any story yet of Gilman putting out the call of, you know, rallying forces to Ultramar to, you know, to establish Imperium Secundus. So this is the first little bit of information we get that Gilliman is putting together his own thing. I had a little bit of a pet peeve with the battle going on planet side because I wasn't sure how the battle lines were drawn. It sounded like the Death Guard wanted the device. So they would have had to assault the facility, go and get the device, and then get it out of there. But they've already got control of the facility. And now the Iron Hands are trying to break into the facility. But I'm thinking, if the Death Card are already inside and they're in control of all these towers, why haven't they just walked in, got the thing, put it on a Thunderhawk, and then flown out? And at different times they say, like, our ship is completely, you know, blocking all communication between the ship and the surface. So quick, call the ship. Like, wait, what? Right, and then the Lion is able to broadcast to both sides despite this jamming going on, that the planet is now under the jurisdiction of the First Legion and anybody that doesn't quit the battlefield will be destroyed. And the Lion starts nuking facilities um, across this planet to get his point across. Yeah, and likewise, it seems like it would have made a lot more sense if the Iron Hands had got there first and they're defending against the Death Guard assault. That would have made, uh, then everything would kind of slot into place. I'm like, okay, the Iron Hands are undermanned. They don't have tactical superior. They don't have air superiority, so they can't get their ship out. They're just waiting for maybe for reinforcements or hold out as long as they can. The Death Guard are pummeling the walls with their uh, with, with their forces, but it was the opposite. So I'm thinking, well, if the Death Guard aren't, were already in there, why didn't they just fly away with it? Well, and it it doesn't seem like the Iron Hands are necessarily on the back foot because if you recall, in that engagement, the Iron Hands like have three or four mastodons with them each of which can has a carrying capacity of like 60 Marines, I believe. So what's that, like 180 Space Marines 
Yeah, it's driving like, it's up so, in three of these super heavies. Yeah, if you can get down, I think it might have even even been six. There was like a ton of mastodons. So like, they've got heavy artillery. They got mastodons. They've got dozens, if not hundreds, of troops on there. It's like, okay, well, what's the problem? Let's. <laughs> yeah, the Iron Hands should have this in the bag. Yeah, it makes no sense. Yeah, so the Iron Hands in the story are really forgettable. They don't do anything. Uh, the Lion effectively tells them to piss off. And he tells the Death Guard to piss off as well, knowing full well the Death Guard have sided with Horus. He shouldn't be pussyfooting around with them. They should get nuked off the board immediately. Uh, nuke first, ask questions later in this regard. It's not like he's dealing with some no-name Death Guard captain. It's, it's Typhon. The, it's the t- Typhon, the first captain. Who's like, very well known. And, you know, the lion's just like, well, we're not going to draw battle lines yet. And, you know, he eventually tells Typhon as well, you know, piss off. You've got no right to this machine. It's under, um, I'm going to destroy everything at this facility. Tell my brothers there's there's nothing for you to bring back. And as the lion is getting ready to do this, and I guess he does go down to the facility and talk to this thing, which turns out to be this, is some kind of demon engine because it's, reference to be um well it's it's a really kind of obscure device because we're not sure if it's a demon we're not sure if it's some kind of alien device it's definitely some sort of uh warp related entity and it's bound to this thing um it does appear to be mechanical or electronic because they um it seems like an ai of some sort it's really weird because they've got it hooked up to this little boy who's basically a zombie and it talks through the little boy zombie. It behaves in a very childlike manner, even though it's this ancient device. So, and it has the ability to translate to the warp and back out again. So is this being done through mechanical means or is it psychic? It's not really clear, but this, whatever this device is, it's unique. Right. And it's, it's advantage is that it can translate through the warp without, Gellerfield's navigators, and it's like pinpoint accuracy. It can also ignore, like, um, they don't need a Mandeville point, so they don't need to travel to the edge of a system outside of gravitational interference to jump out of the system, and they don't need to translate to the... um, You have to translate into the center of a system, right? To uh, Like, you need to be next to the star or whatever, the Coriolis, to avoid gravitational forces or some shit. Anyway, sci-fi gobbledygook. Well, and it just seems to me like if you find something this powerful, that sucker is, is either going to Luna, Mars, or Titan. Right. You're not going to leave it out in the middle of nowhere. For right, and up. it's at this kind of minimally guarded research facility. Um, the Mechanicum have it hidden there, but when they get into system, the navigator says that the warp is completely becalmed. We don't know, um, we don't have any markers or anything to suggest where we're at. And the lion says, oh yeah, that's the nature of this facility. So anybody flying through the warp could stumble across this anomaly, or even a navigator might see it a long ways off and say, there's something weird going on over there. And it's, you know, looking for the things you don't see is important as looking for the things you do see. It's, you know, it's that kind of th- thing. The War Master knows something is here, so of course he's going to send his lackeys to go get it. Yeah, the lion talks to this thing, and this thing wants to work the lion because it has had some kind of prophetic vision or whatever that it's going to set him... It's The lion is going to set this thing free, which it, it maybe it's a bound demon. I, I don't know. It, it doesn't matter. But the lion's able to ally with it 
and get it aboard his ship. And the the problem with the Thramas Crusade is that the, the angels have never been able to catch the Night Lords because the Night Lords are always a step ahead. So the lion takes this thing, and at the end of the story, the lion just says, you know, this is my ticket to finally catching Kurz. And so I think from here, it's just a setup for the next short story, a couple of short stories of the Night Lords getting their teeth kicked in. And that's the entirety of the Thramas Crusade. We don't get a, like a solid Night Lords book, story, anything like that. That's about as far as it goes. The only thing of interest at the end is that he's talking to the Watcher in the Dark. And the Watcher in the Dark is telling him to go back to Caliban because he's going to lose half his legion. And he says, I can't, I can't do that because I can't let um, Guleman take over the Empire. They kind of had a point where Corswain and the Lion are talking and the Lion reveals that he got a transmission from Guleman, the whole Imperial Secundus thing. And the Lion reveals that he hadn't responded yet because he wasn't sure if Guleman could be trusted. And then they have this conversation with the Watcher where he's like, you need to go back to Caliban because, you know, basically the Fallen are a thing. And he goes, I have to deal with Gilliman first. Either he's loyal and I need to support him or he's a traitor and I need to kill him. And so he just sends, I think it ends with him sending a transmission to Gilliman saying I'm on my way. The only addition to it is the Tchula engine, which allows the Dark Angels to translate their whole fleet very accurately. Uh, the lion is totally out of character a lot of the time. He's It's not really the same character we've had thus far. Like I said, I'm very upset that they just kill Nemiel for next to no reason with no next to no setup and absolutely no consequences. Like, shouldn't the Primarch killing a well-respected officer on the bridge of his ship kind of drive a wedge into the Legion? Like, maybe some of the Legionnaires are like, whoa, that's really messed up. You know, are we sure that he's in the right mind. Well, not to get too spoilery, but Nemuel's death will have some implications in the future. Oh, I guess I forgot about that. So, Maniple, do you have any takeaway from the story? No. Again, like I just thought the, the, the Primarch was kind of wasted here. He just didn't seem like an interesting character. I really wanted there, after each of these stories, to think like, wow, this is this guy was a hero. This guy was really cool. He really had some neat things that he did. And I could, someone I could, even if they were flawed, I could look up to. But he just seems like a total dickhead. Yeah, like if he was charging around acting like a gallant knight, uh, maybe saving this facility instead of setting it up to be destroyed, maybe being kind of coerced into this position to ally with the T'Challa in. Tichula engine, Tichula, ha, Wakanda forever. Anyway, um, you know, being put in his precarious position to maybe um, put his chivalric nature on hold to work towards something greater than himself might have been more interesting, but we just don't get that. We don't get, you know, there's no heroics, there's no chivalry. Um, he just throws his weight around. He chews out this iron hand for following orders. He tells known enemies to piss off into the dark, lets them get away. And like, not, not even lets them get away. He sets them up to attack the facility again, more or less, because Tython is able to, to mass teleport Death Shroud into the facility and try to capture the artifact. 
And the artifact talks to Tython and teleports him and his fleet out of system. It's just kind of a nothing ending. And that's The Lion by Gav Thorpe. Big mess. So kind of going with the theme of the others, what would have been the better story? I do like the angle that at the end, the lion has to make a choice between going to Caliban and saving his legion or going to Gilliman uh, for Imperium Secundus. I think if they had focused more on that dichotomy and the lion having to make basically an impossible decision uh, would have been far more interesting. Well, yeah, and like set, set that up to not be a sure thing. It's like go to Caliban and save part of your legion or gamble everything by going to Imperium Secundus and maybe save everything. Well, and it's also, it, it's not even just, it's that it goes even deeper of not just even saving part of your legion, but a very important part of your legion, you know, because a lot of people like Luther are on Caliban. And despite their falling out, the Lion does care very much for Luther. And so being given that option or the option of if you go to save Luther, you could potentially let the Imperium itself crumble. Uh, you know, and so it's a very interesting decision he would have to make there. And, uh, you know, I would have even been fine with just a better battle on a planet's surface. Like he only gets in with his battle barge, but it's been crippled. There's an overwhelming Death Guard fleet, so he's got to be really sneaky with how he takes it on. The Iron Hands are defending the facility to its last man, and only with a knight and a few of his chosen warriors can he go in, strike the heart of the enemy, go in, save the day, like a knight charging the field of battle. That would have been great, but we don't get any of that stuff. It's just like, <laughs> just going yeah, down and- after another. Maniple, something I really appreciated you mention, mentioning in the group chat before the recording was there are no heroes and there are no villains. And even Tython in the story is a very, he's a, a next to no threat because of the way he's written out, basically. So to not set the lion up to be the conquering hero, defeating some horrible villain, it's just the lion swinging his sword around like an asshole and the villain's just not even leaving of their own volition, just being whisked away on the winds of the warp. And it's a pretty nothing ending. Yeah, like how does he punch Nemuel's head off, but not even slap Typhon? Yeah, it's super annoying. So I I guess the fix is to, to set the lion up in a way of him acting heroic and to actually put a villain, a recognizable, well, not a recognizable, an actual dangerous villain in that setting. I mean, you had Kairos Fate Weaver there if you wanted recognizable. He gets his shit rocked by the lion and it's not even close. <laughs> yeah. I, I do want to say, I think this is one of the first times we really get the more concrete descriptions of the demons. Because um, up until this point, they've been enigmatic and sort of that, you know, the like the first alien movie, the best monster is no monster kind of thing where they're, you get the body horror of it, but you never get anything definite but in this book it's very much like these are blood letters these are pink horrors that's Cairo's fate weaver you can buy these models just like in 40k you know uh and i don't think they've done that up until this point where we've got definite shaped demons i think there were even yeah. plague bearers in this yeah it was actually kind of shocking to read that i'm like oh okay i know exactly what these things are 
prior to that you have the is it abnet who just writes them as generic chaos yeah they're very he gives them like a very kind of generic descriptor of the the air turns to mush around them there's bloated flies and this horribly misshapen figure comes out of the ether and that's that's the abnetism that i i care for the least in his writing but here very clearly like yeah, like it's a definite this, description. These are yeah. definite. These are the demons we know. Yeah. I think it's the only other time besides Samus, too, that any demon's been named yet, if, as far as I can remember. I think maybe the one that fought Horus with the Athenane was No, named. that wasn't a demon. That was a possessed captain. That's ship what it captain. Was. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah, um, Samus and Kara's Feet Waver are the only named ones. And then, like you guys said, this is the first descriptor of, like, actual demons. Go now to our shop to buy the actual (laughs) demons. Yeah. Well, do we want to get into the last story here? Yep. I can start us off here. This one is called The Serpent Beneath. And we have a, a couple of things this could refer to. It could, of course, be the Hydra which is the symbol of the Alpha Legion. But there's also a little hint of a... Oh, wait, no, 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 no. Sorry, going back just a little bit. The one thing I thought interesting in the last story was when the tech priest is opening up the vault to go into, he's got a a wrist elect two that is of the dragon. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. He's got um, the the cult of the dragon elect two on his wrist that the lion notices. Right, and I was actually hoping that that would show up in this last story, but it, it wasn't. I was a false memory. I literally re- read the story a day ago, and I can barely remember any of it. But anyway, um, the the dragon beneath, or the serpent beneath, is about the Hydra, the Alpha Legion. And I think it's supposed to refer to the idea of all the different secrets they have that are kind of under the surface that are undoing all their work anyway. So it seems like the, the Alpha Legion in the lore is always one step ahead of the enemy. They have all the information. They've got all the secrets. They know everything, and they're they're super capable. Other places, it's said that they might be the largest legion because they've got spies and infiltrators everywhere, which appears to be true. And there's a lot of, uh, I think, a work you said this kind of read like a spy caper a little bit. And kind of it did. But again, there's a problem because I don't know who the villain is. And I don't really know why they're doing what they're doing. And I'm not really sure who the hero is either. And I suppose in an Alpha Legion story, all those things should be in place. But the mystery should be left to the characters, not to the reader. The reader should kind of have an idea of what's going on, at least in a general sense, and then have some kind of a surprise at the end. By the time I got to the end of this, I just wanted to club a baby seal. I was just so angry at how everything worked out and it was so dumb. So basically you've got, you've got Alpharian, Alpharius and Omega and Omegon. They're twin Primarchs and they're both spy masters and they have their own secrets that they're playing, their own um, assets that are in play and all this sort of thing. But Omegon realizes that that one of their secret facilities and here we are with another secret facility has somehow been compromised we think and there and his solution is to get rid of this facility completely 
that was the part I had a problem with because I thought, okay, if you've got a leak, you may be a double agent or something like that in your facility. You would just take all the personnel out and debrief them, figure out who the spy was, kill him, and then send everybody back to work. But the Alpha Legion can't do that. It's got to be much more complex. Or likewise, if, if your facility is compromised beyond redemption, then you just crash a ship into it or launch a couple of nukes or do something to blow it up and get rid of it or scuttle it in some fashion. But they go through the most, I think, idiotic way of disposing of this facility as possible. So they've got this, I guess it's kind of a listening station or a broadcasting station that's made up of this gigantic obsidian pillar on an asteroid. And it has the effect of becalming the warp, but at the edge of where the warp is becalmed, it, there's a lot of extra turbulence. So it's kind of like what the, what the previous thing was doing, but now it's a obsidian pillar instead. And they've got this super secret spy base that no one can find out about, but they build it next to a Demiurge mining facility. No, the, the Demiurge are mining the asteroid that the pylon is built on. Who built the pylon? We don't know. It's an alien facility. Okay. And the so, Alpha Legion are using it as, like you said, some kind of listening post slash uh, broadcasting station. Right. And it's super, super secret. So why would you let the Demiurge continue to work there? And how do the Demiurge not know it's there? They're mining for freaking rocks in sand. And there's this priceless Xenos artifact literally 10 feet away. They would probably be worth a lot more to them. This Alpha Legion team uses the Demiurge tunnels to infiltrate this facility. Yeah, I know. But why haven't the Demiurge taken over? I, I'm the right there with you. I am right there with you. I have no freaking clue. I mean, if the Demiurge are what would later become the, um, what are the, the Leagues of Votan, yeah. say, they would know that this is big money, like this is an important thing, and they would have a big facility there managing this thing. But instead, they're just literally mining rocks and then shooting them through space on a supply run that takes 100 years to get to the people that ordered it. That is so stupid. But anyway, uh, it's it... just real quick. The pylon was built by the Cabal and gifted to the Alpha Legion so that they could stall the White Scars. Right. And the, oh, the Cabal right. Were like okay. A, a collection of Xenos races. Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah the guys that recruited them to go trader. Yeah. Okay. So there's this team that's trying to screw the white scars on this other planet. And they get one of them gets called out to be on this team. That's going to infiltrate the facility to get rid of it. And it just seems like it's it's really convoluted process. Yeah. There's like this quick montage of them putting together their team. Yeah. And you don't want anybody to know about this facility raid. So let's bring in a bunch of disparate strangers from all these different war zones to come in on a secret mission. It's like, no, you're you're creating a lot more problems here because they're going to ask, like, remember Fred? Like, Fred was a really good spy, but then he got called to the secret mission and disappeared. I wonder what that was all about. 
and all his friends are going to be calling up to Alpharius and saying, hey, what happened to Fred? Remember Fred? He was a good guy. So, okay, so they then they go on this, um, oh, the part that really pissed me off. Oh, my gosh. Zalma Gundy. Zalma Gundy is this little girl that was a, a psyker, and she had really, really potent powers. I really liked Zalma Gundy. I thought she was a neat character. She was just adorable. I just wanted to, to just give her a big hug and tell her it's going to be okay. Because she's on the run from her family, from the hive scum that are hunting her, and from the Sisters of Silence. But she gets away from all of them because she's so clever, she's so quick, and she's so powerful. And in the end, well, as she's fleeing from the Sisters of Silence, the Alpha Legion find her and say, you've got some special powers that we can use, and we're going to save your life. And the Alpha Legion save her from the Sisters of Silence. That part was all right. I kind of like that part. And they they rush her off, and I imagine her going to the Alpha Legion Battle Barge and getting a nice hot bowl of soup and a warm blankie and maybe some chicken nuggies or something, and everything's finally going to be okay for this poor little girl. And she's like, we're going to now take you on a secret mission to an asteroid in the middle of nowhere with these power-armored warriors, and you're going to have so much fun. And they give her this this dog collar to wear that limits her powers, but also makes her a little bit sleepy. And she sat there smoking a cigarette, falling asleep. Wait, wait, a low stick. Is that what it is? A low stick? A low stick getting sleepy. While freaking isn't Omegon and all these super spies talking about their plan. Yeah. And they got this little girl smoking a cigarette in the corner. I thought, I don't know if I love this or hate this, but it was the weirdest Thing. Yeah, I I had some really mixed feelings there too. I was like, okay, does she really need to be here? I mean, she's she's more like a loaded gun. You don't you don't need to brief your gun on the mission. She's more of a tool in this respect. Yeah, and these are super spies. It's like, hey, let's get the edgy teenager in here to make sure that she can hear what's going on. So there's a couple different teams. They head to the asteroid. And is it a planetoid, asteroid, whatever it is? Who cares? They need to destroy it. And they've somehow got most of the schematics of the base, so they know where to assault. But the guy who's oh, in charge... The, the tech priest. They picked up a tech priest or some shit. A uh, craftsman or something. And they find out that the tech priest was trying to build another one of these pylons. Which sounded kind of like a good idea. It's like, oh, you're going to blow this one up. So keep him, make another one somewhere else. But they don't do that. It's like, no, you screwed up, buddy. You, you can't play this game anymore. And I wasn't clear if he was the one they were using to infiltrate the facility or if there's another guy already on the base that was helping them out. Because it, it was, like it was him. It was, it was him. But the, the thing is, like, this, this facility is compromised somehow. They don't know how it's compromised. But this is their contact on board and I'm not really sure how they vet him. Like, how do they know that he's not the leak? They just bring him in on this op. And they shut down his operation to build a new one. Why? Yeah, well, it's secrets within secrets, I guess. Um, the way they describe the people, the personnel on the facility was pretty neat. I liked these 760 Spartacids. If we get a solar auxilia 
plastic kit. I'm going to try to make some of these guys. They sound really cool. They're like this um, um, legion or this human, what do they call the human uh, auxiliaries that was beaten down, broken, not given any more any more supplies, and they're just wearing rags, basically. But the Alpha Legion's like, yeah, we can work with these dudes because they're desperate. Okay, I like that. I would definitely make a, a detachment of these dudes. Uh, so their plan, I guess, was to smuggle Zalmagundi on there as a, a psychic <laughs> battery to power the pylon and then break her out then use her ability to destroy the facility or the, all the ships on the facility and then push it into the sun so that when anybody comes looking for this facility, there is nothing left at all. And there's, a, I guess, a fairly interesting scene where they're going through the facility. They find out that the information given to them by the security officer wasn't 100% accurate, that he's now set up some ambushes for them, and it's a lot harder to get through this than they originally thought. But they still get through. Now, where I really wanted to throw the book across the room was when it said that he screwed a silencer on his bolt pistol. There's a Give, whole host of reasons that won't work. Break that down for us because some of our audience might not be as gun savvy as the rest of us. Okay. Like a bolt pistol is like a 40 millimeter hand cannon that is recoilless. That means that the, the, the round is launched out of the barrel by a by a rocket charge in the back of the of the round, so it makes a big whoosh sound when it shoots out like an RPG. And then there are these big holes on the side of the barrel that let the exhaust gas escape, so it doesn't blow into your face. And then it flies through the air till it hits the target, and then it's an ex- it's an explosive round. Because they were developed to kill orcs. And the way you kill orcs is by dissolving their matter. You can't just poke a hole in them. You have to dissolve their matter and make a huge explosion. So when it goes whoosh, crack, explosion. And you, there, you can't silence that unless you have a different kind of gun. But it's not a bolt pistol. Give them a fucking needle pistol. Give them snu- uh, give them stub pistols. Stubby give them stub awesome. Give them auto rifles. It's it's not standard legionary gear, but it will absolutely fulfill the needs. Like a man portable lance cannon would be would be quieter than a bolt pistol. Yeah, what's well, the Russian Badger line? It's a uh, rocket propelled can of Red Bull coming at your head. You put a silencer on it, definitely going to be quiet. Which actually, now that you mention it, I've never thought of that before. But looking at the uh, recon marines, like the sniper rifles they have, have silencers on them. It never even occurred to me to question that. Or even Exodus has a silencer on his bolt rifle. I'm not convinced those are all bolt weapons. They might just be... Uh, auto weapons, but uh, but yeah, that's that's a problem. Yeah, well, I'm trying to think because it's Nemesis bolt gun. Yeah, yeah. So they're technically bolt rounds with silencers. I never thought about that. Oh, that bothers me now. <laughs> anyway, Americans have beef with British writing. Anyway, actually, so, I don't know if the author's British. It's just well, not good. And at some point, um, well, 
no spoilers, but Omegon is working his way through the facility. He gets to the top where they've got the astropathic choir and he's going to take out the astropathic choir. But the head of security has ambushed him there and is able to put, I think that's, um, the, uh, he is able to put three bolt rounds into Omegon. Those three bolt rounds, when they pierced his armor, should have exploded inside and ripped him apart. But it didn't. He just says, oh, he just, he literally pokes his finger in the three holes to see if he hit the spine. I'm like, I think you'd know if he hit your freaking spine. Because your legs wouldn't work. But he's like, okay, he missed the spine. I'm going to get back up and kick this guy's ass. And he just, he does. He just gets up and, and just, how, how does he kill him? He shoot him or punch him or something. Oh no, he um he somehow breaks the armor glass. Like he he's able to get himself up against a wall. Omegon's able to get himself up against the wall and wedge his backpack into a crevice. And then he breaks the armor glass on the on the choir loft and shoots this guy out into space without his helmet on. Yeah, he he makes a, a vent into the into outer space and then he's he's fine. But because he took the guy's helmet, right? So then, and the whole time Omegon is leading this whole charge, Omegon goes out to the landing facility where they're supposed to be picked up by a Thunderhawk or something by Sheed Ranko, the captain of the Learning Terminators, Terminators. And the rest of his crew who survived is out there. And this poor little girl, Zelma Gundy, is got her hands on the the tarmac looking up at the sun and driving this asteroid into the sun. And she says, I've been blinded by this light here. Can your Legion restore my eyesight? Can they restore my eyesight? And then Omega looks at his battle brother and says, um, what's the trajectory like? And he says, the trajectory is good. Uh, the facility is heading into the sun. And he puts a silence bolt round through this girl's head. And that really pissed me off. And yeah. Oh, I was so mad when that happened. I didn't throw the book across the the, the, the room, but that was close. Well, now we know why they let her hear all the plans. They knew she wasn't going to make it. It's yeah, like, the, Alpha Reg- the Alpha Legion are so thorough with their no survivors rule. They even do it to themselves. Yeah, and they're like, where's the ship? And Omegon's like, there's no ship. He takes off his helmet and reveals that it's not Omegon at all. It was Sheed Renko the whole time. And he's the guy who's been leading this expedition. It was not the Primarch. There's no ship coming. And they're all headed into the sun with this facility to just die. What a twist. What a twist. Oh, wow. why, why would Omegon throw away a veteran captain like that? I don't know. I don't know. None of this made any sense. It's like you could have just... Go hire a tugboat, you know, hire yeah. a tugboat, hook it yeah. onto the asteroid and then and then have it, you know, just dragged into the sun. Would have been easy. What did you think of the bit about the the chalice that Ranko drinks that has Omegon's blood in it? Was that so that he could pass as Omegon if there was some kind of a scan or something? Well, in, in his final moments, Ranko reveals that he he was the Primarch for an instant, 
because the Alpha Legion apparently now have this ability where the Primarch can pass his blood on to a Legionary, and for all intents and purposes, that Legionary is now the Primarch. And just overhandling. It's a lot like uh, in Deliverance Lost, where they have that one Legionary who is psycho-conditioned to think he's Alpharius the entire time, even though he's not. He sort of knows he's not, but also knows that he is. Just Yeah, okay, great. But then at the end, you have this little thing where Omegon is back on his ship. Or the, the beta. Base, the beta. And he's talking with... Are you Alpharius. a beta? Alpharius. And Alpharius is like, hey, we got to get to the bottom of this. And Omegon's like, okay. And then they've, they've got these schemes, these schemes, these schemes that don't go anywhere. Like, what is the point of any of it? Why are they doing all these schemes right. just to so screw it, each other? It it seems that that Alpharius and Omegon are now at odds for whatever reason. Like, maybe the leak coming out of this facility wasn't a leak at all. It was actually Alpharius's actual orders, and for whatever reason, Omegon didn't like that, and so he nukes the facility. Yeah. I think the implication is that Alpharius sides with the Cabal and wants to see the Emperor killed and that Omegon is potentially still loyalist and is trying to undermine all the Legion's plans so that Horus doesn't succeed, but it's not very clear. Yeah, so give us some kind of a conclusion. Like you would like the big twist at the end was that oh all these Legionnaires are gonna die on the asteroid. I'm like, that's kind of a crappy twist. A better twist would have been very clearly Oh, Alpharius is going with the Cabal. Omegon is trying to save the Emperor. That would have been like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. But you don't get any of it. It's just like, well, whose side are they on? And there's no, but I get, maybe that's the point too. It's like, you just don't know. And so Right. And that's kind of the, the thing with the Alpha Legion is that you never know whose side they're on. But I, I think that you could still write this story and give us these defined odds within the Legion. And then we could still understand that we, that the alpha Legion isn't really on anybody's side. Um, they've got their, their own internal battles, but it, I don't know. The whole thing is a freaking rat's nest at the end. And, and it's just a waste of time. It's like, why did I read this? Like what, what's it supposed to be telling me? What, what is the point that the Alpharius and Omega have a lot of schemes? It's okay. I knew that. Yeah. That's kind of their thing. I will say it's the first time that we've seen any indication that the Alpha Legion is not united and that there is something going on behind the scenes with them that's causing a lot of discord. Because everything we've seen before, whether it was Legion or Deliverance Lost, uh, when it comes to the Alpha Legion, they are 100% united in purpose. They all know their missions. They're all doing their thing, even if it is, you know, over the top overcomplicated spy nonsense, at least they're all driving in one direction, which is the Cabal's plan. And this is the first time we see that, oh, there's there might be an element that doesn't, you know, that's not 100% on board with this. And it may even go as far up as the Primarchs themselves being conflicted. And I think that's the main point of the story. It's just, it takes way too long to get there. I guess that's, I guess that's kind of a point. That's what I was looking for was, What's the point of the story? And 
I suppose it's like with these other ones, it's just kind of showing that the Primarchs are not heroes. They're not even smart. And, and that's why they fall to chaos or they call fall to disorder or whatever reason. They're just, they're just dopes. That's too bad. Yeah. This, this book is a big skip. Uh, there's, there's nothing here that doesn't get, there's, there's not really anything in this book that you can't live without knowing. Like, uh, in the Unremembered Empire, the lion shows up with the Tatrula engine, and it's you know the lion says, "I've got my own." Basically, tells Gilman, "I've got my own secrets. Don't worry about it." And that's really all the information you need. It's not a big deal. The Fulgrim story. There's no information in this Fulgrim story that you don't get in Angel Exterminatus. There's nothing in Feet of Iron that is worth a takeaway at all. It's a pretty nothing story. This Alpha Legion story is also a big nothing murderer. So this book is a big skip. And even with the Angel Exterminatus, and I don't want to do any spoilers here, but doesn't that turn out to be a big nothing burger as well? I think it does set up Perturabo. You know, it's a Perturabo story, basically. So, you know, he gets plenty of story in that one. So who would like to read this story? If somebody, if, was there any, anything we could pull out of this that would be a, a, a positive I mean, if you're hungry for content, like very generic content, if you're hungry like an, like a Marvel Marvel Cinematic Universe fan, this is right up your alley. But if you want like good storytelling, go reread Horus Rising or Fulgrim. It's much or, better characterization. Or a Battle for the Abyss. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, overall, it's not great. I think there are some cool ideas in here. Um the Emperor's Children one, a lot of the backstory on how the Legion now functions post-Chaos Fall was pretty cool. You know, like you mentioned, Salmagundi was a really good character in the Alpha Legion one. I did enjoy the very short stuff they had about her. And uh, even just that description of her running around that hive world and how being a rogue psyker just out in the open is kind of a cool idea. I'm trying to think. The Dark Angels one... Like we kind of said during our uh, cut portion, there are going to be some implications of decisions made there that'll come up later in the books. You'll have to wait for more on that. Uh, the Iron Hands one, I think that was a cool idea of a story that was just very badly written. And if it had been handled differently, could have been really cool. So I think it's good if you're a completionist, it's worth the read but you're not really getting a whole lot of it as it is now. And work. Was there anything else that uh, Ridge had sent you or talked about on his take? His big takeaway for like um, the Emperor's children story was, you know, this is not the Fulgrim that we had at the end of the Fulgrim book. And it does a really jo poor job of explaining how he gets to the point he's at in this short story. His takeaway from feet of iron was the iron hands are really stupid and they just trudge towards their enemy he never sent me any. I don't think he got through the entire book last I talked to him. Like I said, he's on vacation. So. Yeah, he said he didn't finish it. So I think he only got through the first two. Yeah, I don't really blame him. Um, he would probably definitely be pissed at the lion acting like Angron. Definitely be pissed at the lion not absolutely tearing ass after the Death Guard. The fact that the Thamas Crusade is basically a big throwaway of every time the Thramas Crusade gets brought up, it's 
the Dark Angels and Night Lords had been busy with the Thamas Crusade. The Thamas Crusade is something that is happening. That's it. We don't really get like any definitive actions. We don't really have a good uh, perspective of why Thramas is important to the Dark Angels or the Night Lords. It's just a big diversionary tactic to keep these two legions tangled up and out of other people's hair, basically. Well, and that's exactly what it is. It's just, hey, we have to account for, you know, why the Dark Angels were doing nothing for the first part of the heresy. And they go, ah, Thramas Crusade. That's why. Why can't the Thramas Crusade be its own interesting thing? Because they never got around to writing it because they had to write other stuff. We see this a lot in the heresy. It's the same thing with uh, this Fulgrim demon thing. Why didn't they write the story of him overcoming the demon? Because they wanted to write the apotheosis now and they needed to get it over with. So here's a short story to get it over with. You know, yeah, we could write about the Thramis Crusade, but we're into Imperial Secundus, and we really want to write about that. So Thramis Crusade, we gave them like two short stories. Now let's do Secundus. It's just kind of how it goes with a lot of this stuff where they built this huge universe and 18 legions running around in it, and they don't have enough time to write about all of it. And so but they're just like, all right, well, they- let's let's go back and do this. The other thing, too, like we mentioned uh, before we started this, the next anthology book has a story that takes place before Deliverance Lost and before the last short story for the Raven Guard explaining what happened in those books. So it's kind of this thing where I'm sure their mentality was, we want to talk about Imperium Secundus because that's important. We can write about Thramis Crusade later when we have more time and we can backpedal. And then they just never got there. So I think that's really what it is. I guess I'm just of a mind. They could have foregone the amount of filler they gave us in favor of a better Thramis Crusade story. Yeah. I mean, the other thing with the Thramis Crusade is if they wanted to write it, they kind of already jumped the shark, you know? It's well, and, they got the Night Lord throttling the lion and Corswain stabbing him in the spine, and it's like that's what you wanted. Do you really want to yeah, hear about I, the battle? Guess, Who cares but, about them jumping around, shooting at each other? All all the stories so far considered, we've gotten two Dark Angels books. We haven't gotten a single Night Lord story. Yeah. Well, so. and, and that's another thing you're going to see coming up as readers is I think the there's like two or three books coming up really quick that are like introducing the iron hands and what they were doing before. And then the next one is, I think it's not salamanders. Is it? I think it's the salamanders intro. You know, it's we're 20 books into the series and we're like, Oh, by the way, this is what the, the iron hands or not the iron hands, the iron warriors have been doing this entire time. I've got the, the next book in our order is fear to tread. Yeah, which that that's is, Blood Angels. Yeah, that's the and Blood then, Angels one. And then there's, uh, which means I'll probably be back on this one, Shadows of Treachery, the anthology. Yeah, that's yeah. the anthology one. Which, yeah. <laughs> oh, before we started recording, Paul was telling me that I didn't sign up for this. I didn't sign yeah. up for all these anthology books. Well, I just remember when uh, you guys were doing Tales of Heresy, 
uh, I think it was like a week before you did the episode, Brandon was in the text and was like, wouldn't it be great if all four of us did this? Yeah, so let's do that. And I was like, I have to read Tales of Heresy in a week and then talk about it. Oh, this is not going to go well. I know Last Church is in there and I'm not prepared. <laughs> so that's why that episode might have been a bit rough for some yeah, of us. Paul, we need to make some kind of a protest where they're not just bringing in their <laughs> famous YouTube friends to yeah. do the good books. We're actually their friends and we get pulled in on this shit. Oh, man. We... We ask the most of our strongest soldiers. How about oh, that? Just like Alpharius. What does what Warwick yeah, ask yeah. of you? Everything. Yes. <laughs> but it's all in fun. But yeah, yeah maybe, I, I, uh, maybe the I next promise, one will be better. I promise to start having you guys on for good books. <laughs> Jeez, are there any at this point? Man, um, Angel Exterminatus yeah. is good. Betrayer is good. Um... Mark of Kalth is good. I'm getting the, the, the White Scars books, books are really money. good. Yeah. Well, uh, I think those we, are all written by Chris Wright, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think the next um, one is Scars. Yeah, I, I asked, that's a great book. I asked somebody to come on for Damnation of Pythos, and I got a death threat. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right. A reasonable response, we'll call it. All right. Well, folks, I think that's our takeaway from the Primarchs book, and I hope you enjoyed listening to us. Do you two have anything else that you want to add here? Thanks for having me on. I, even when the books are bad, I have a good time talking to you guys. So. Where did you make it on your uh, your bottle of vodka? Well, it turns out it's not really vodka because it's, it's only um, 60 proof and only a two inches oh so you weren't trying very hard no okay paul yeah always fun you know as a uh recently converted chaos player complaining is my favorite thing to do in the hobby so this is great yep that's uh right on right on par with chaos players so thanks for listening folks i'm glad you stuck around if you've made it this far check us out on social media we are legion cast a horror heresy podcast on twitter and shoot us an email at legioncast18 at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Don't forget to like this podcast, leave us a rating and a comment, and share it out to all your buddies. Until next time.